All right, we are week two of a series that we're calling Do Justice, Love, Mercy, Walk Humbly. And really this series is about biblical justice. It's about what the Bible has to say about justice and what that means for us as people who follow Jesus in this world. You know, Tim Keller paints a really, I think, wonderful picture of what it means to do justice. He talks about how the world that God created was good, that it's perfect, that everything in it works harmoniously and perfectly and the way it's supposed to, kind of like a big piece of fabric or a blanket where all the threads are woven together just in the right way. But because of sin in our world, because of brokenness and fallenness and injustice, the fabric is coming apart. Have you ever noticed this? That the fabric of our world in certain places is starting to disintegrate. It's starting to come apart. And that people's lives are literally fraying and unraveling. And so Keller says, to do justice is to work to weave things back together back the way God longs for them to be, to make things right, to bring shalom, we talked about, to bring peace last week, to restore wholeness and delight and flourishing and harmony, to see people in places that seem to be unraveling and then just go and stitch them back up. That's what it means to do justice. Last week we talked about the Hebrew word for justice, mishpat, and it means to rectify things that are wrong, to restore things that aren't the way they're supposed to be. And this morning, we're going to jump into a few different passages, but I want to start today uh, with a verse from Proverbs. Proverbs, as you may know, is part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. It's literature that teaches us about how to be people of wisdom in this world, how to live wisely in this world where we live. And I want to start here because we're going to go through a series of questions this morning and try and gain some answers to them as we talk about justice. But the first question is, how important is this idea of doing justice to God? And we're doing a whole series on this, on this idea, on this theme of justice. How important is this topic really? I mean, is this central stuff or is it just extra credit kind of on the side stuff? Is this really just the stuff that really, really committed, zealous, crazy Christians engage in? Or is this sort of stuff for all of us? How important is this idea of doing justice to God? Proverbs chapter 29 verse 7 says this. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. All throughout the book of Proverbs, there's this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And we're going to talk a little bit about more, more about that in a little bit. Um, but in this verse, it says the righteous care about justice for the poor. The word care is kind of a, a lightweight, wimpy translation, really. The, the actual Hebrew word is the word yada. Yada, it's sometimes translated to know or to be intimately connected to the righteous yada for about justice for the poor. And we've actually talked about this word before, this word yada. If some of you have been around for a while, when I very first came to Cedar Mill a few years back, we did a whole sermon really almost on this one word. Does anyone remember where we first read this word? In the scriptures. Yeah, Adam and Eve. Thanks, Greg. Um, 
He's a plant. I told him the answer ahead of time. No. Uh, yeah, from Adam and Eve. Right away at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, we read that Adam and Eve get together and they do what you need to do to have a child and they yada. They know one another. So yada is knowledge so passionate and intimate that it's actually a synonym for sexual activity. In other words, friends, this verse from Proverbs is not just saying that you should kind of sort of care about injustice whenever it's convenient, whenever you get around to it. No, it's saying that your life should be intimately connected and committed to justice. For the righteous, they are intimately connected to justice in this world. Here's another passage. Jeremiah chapter 9 says, This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. You see, here's my my fear for us. My fear for us is that we will go through this series and, and hold on to this idea that, yeah, we certainly should, as good Christians, do some nice things for dis- disadvantaged people from time to time, that certainly it's not a good idea to be greedy or stingy, that we should be generous and charitable. That, yeah, that's a, that's a good thing when we get around to it. But friends... That is not what the Bible says. It is not the message of the scriptures. Love Jesus and do a few good things for needy people whenever it's convenient. Not the message of the scriptures. The Bible says this strongly and very clearly. If you aren't a person who engages justice, you are not just kind of stingy. You are unjust. If you are not A person who engages justice, you are unjust. Because in the scriptures, there is no neutral. There is no middle ground. You either have God's heart for the vulnerable in this world or you don't. Your life is either aimed at bringing justice or you are living a life that is unjust. That scriptural truth had better confront us. It had better arrest us. The Bible wants to jolt us into a new way of thinking and living. And it gets even worse. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 7. Declare to my people their rebellion. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Down to verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, says God? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, 
to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Friends, these verses should, verses should grab us. They should catch our attention. They should make us a little nervous. And here's why. Do you know who God is talking to in this passage? This is a strong rebuke, right? This is, this is an extremely bold and in-your-face challenge. And the question is, who is God addressing? He's addressing people who worship him. And not only that, he is talking to people who are very committed to worshiping him. Notice it says at the very beginning, day after day they seek me out. Day after day. He says, they seem eager to know my ways. These are not sort of semi-committed people. These are very religious folks that God is talking to. The word eager here is the word for passionate These are people who are passionate for God and the things of God. These are people who are committed to coming to church and who sing loud and who raise their hands and who read their Bibles often. God is not talking here to the Christmas and Easter crowd. And yet, in spite of that, even though he's talking to these very, very religiously committed folks, here's what he says about them. He says, you are living lives of rebellion lives of rebellion by not caring about justice you see one of the the big challenges of what we do here when we gather as a church is that it can easily become an end in and of itself church can easily become just religion Worship services can become this thing we do to simply check the God box in our lives. And that is never, ever, ever the intent of the church. This gathering is not an end in and of itself. It's a means to an end. And the end is this. The goal is this. Knowing God more fully. We don't gather just to gather. We gather to know God more fully, to surrender to him more completely. That's the goal. Church services are not the goal. Church activities, not the goal. Us being transformed into God's people, that's the goal. Around here, we say it like this. Our mission to attend as many church functions as possible and get credit for them from the pastor. No. Our mission... Becoming like Jesus and making him known. Again, religious practices are not the goal. Being the church, coming to church, not the goal. Being the church, that's the goal. Being transformed into a people who love and care about the things God loves and cares about. Friends, do you understand this is at the very heart, the very center of biblical faith that if you love God you'll love justice the scriptures are extremely pointed on this point in Matthew chapter 25 Jesus himself goes as far as to say this if you don't show love and care and concern for the poor and the prisoner and the vulnerable if you don't love them 
then you don't love me. You see, this is huge. Is this important? Extremely important. Being people of justice and having hearts of justice is central to a life following Jesus. So then, why don't we do it? If it's that important, if it's that central, if it's that critical, if scripturally we're called to it that strongly, why don't we live this way? Well, Micah answers this question, I think, so artfully. You know, he's talking in this book. The book of Micah is really a book to people who did a lot of religion. They do a lot of religious stuff, but they, they don't live lives of justice. Micah's written to a group of people that religion is big, but justice, not so much. And listen to what Micah says to them. Micah chapter 2, verse 11. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy, prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer... That would be just the prophet for this people. If there was a prophet out there and his prophecy was, hey, I got lots of wine and beer for you, that would be just the right prophet for you. That's what Micah says to the people. And the question is, what does he mean by that? Well, let me ask you. What do wine and beer do? Don't pretend like you don't know. <laughs> I, I know about you. This is Portland, man. This, this is wine and beer country. I'll ask it this way. Does wine and beer motivate you and make you more aware of what's going on around you? A or B, does it dull your senses and just make you comfortable? A or B? B. B. It dulls your senses and just makes you comfortable. And here's what Micah is saying. All you want is to be comfortable. All you want is to escape. All you want is to avoid the struggles and challenges and difficulties that engaging justice will bring. If there was a prophet out there who said, more wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for you. You people who are so addicted to your comfort and ease and pleasure. Friends, if justice is so important, why don't we do it? Here's why. Because it's hard. Because it's messy. Because it will disrupt the easy, comfortable life of pleasure-seeking so many of us in this world are tempted to chase. I will, prof I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer. That would be just the prophet for this people. I think he's talking to Israel, but he could sure be talking to 21st century American Christians, couldn't he? Why don't we pursue justice? Because it disrupts our lives of comfort. But the next question is this. What would happen, though, if we would pursue justice? You know, justice is important. We don't pursue it because we're addicted to comfort and pleasure and convenience and ease. But what if we did? What if we actually became people who fell in love with pursuing justice and doing justice in this world? What in the world would happen then? Flip with me to Proverbs again. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10. Listen to this. This is just a great verse. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. 
When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. The writer here is talking about a group of people who have been successful. The the word prosper here is a very strong word that really means they've risen to the top. When the righteous rise to the top, see, this is he's talking about a person who, who advances, who's promoted, who has wealth and influence and power in the city. And he says, when the righteous experience that kind of success, something happens. The city rejoices. And you know what's really interesting is that. The people of the city, when they see this person advance and grow and succeed, they don't resent that person. Resentment isn't the response. We love to resent people who've got a lot, don't we? We love to hate the rich, to judge and scrutinize them. I know you do. People who've got more, lots, lots more than you, and they don't seem to have worked as hard as you've worked. You love it when they fall, when they mess up, you will judge and scrutinize them like crazy. But not in this case. Not in this case. Instead, we're told that when the righteous person is successful, the rest of the city rejoices to see them succeed, rejoices at their prosperity. Why? Why are the people of the city so happy when this person is successful? Here's why. Because when a righteous person wins, it's a win for everyone. When a person who is committed to justice, to making things right, gains resources and influence and power, the city knows that all that stuff is going to be used for the greater good, for the good of all people, specifically for the vulnerable and the needy and the poor and the oppressed. Bruce Waltke, who I quoted last week, is one of the great Hebrew scholars um, of our day. And he says that the book of Proverbs defines the righteous and the wicked in a very specific way. When you read the book of Proverbs, what's meant by the righteous and the wicked is different than what you might think. Here's what he says about it. He says, a righteous person is a person who disadvantages him or herself for the community. And the wicked person is a person who sees his or her resources as belonging just to them. A wicked person is a person who sees his or her resources as belonging just to them. That's a biblical definition of wickedness. See, when you and I think of wickedness or wicked people, who do we think of? We think of the green lady with the pointed hat and the long nose, you know, in uh, the Dorothy movie. What's it called? That's it, The Wizard of Oz. Good job. You guys really got that one. You didn't get any of the biblical questions. Yeah, we think of the wicked witch of the West only, someone who sits around and just tries to destroy other people's lives. Friends, that is wicked, but that's not the biblical definition of wicked. To be wicked in the eyes of the scripture is just to be a person who says, all my resources are mine and I will use them for me. That is a different way of thinking about righteousness and wickedness, isn't it? A biblical way. So here's, here's a question. Are you the kind of person who is so righteous that when you prosper, it's a win for the people around you? Are you the kind of person who is so righteous that when power and influence and resources come your way, the poor and vulnerable and needy benefit also. 
Here's another way of thinking about it. Do the people in your neighborhood or at your office or in your family or at your school say, you know, I may not believe what that person believes, but we would sure miss them if they were not around anymore because our community is a better place because of who they are. Do people say that about you? Because that's a righteous person, someone who is so committed to making things right that they'd be missed if they were gone. That their life has spilled out onto and into so many other lives, specifically lives of people who are vulnerable and poor and needy and oppressed in this world. They've impacted them so much and so significantly that if they were gone, they would be radically and deeply missed. When I define a righteous person in that way, who do you think of? Of course, you think of George Bailey, right? It's a Wonderful Life, one of the greatest movies ever in the history of the world. Watch that. I know it's not Christmas time. It feels really out of season. We're trying to move into spring, and I'm taking this backwards. Watch It's a Wonderful Life this week. Just dial it up. Watch it. You know, Clarence, you're going to love it. It's so good. If you've not seen it, you, you're missing out. If you have seen it, watch it again, and here's why. That is a movie all about Proverbs 11. An entire movie about one verse in the Bible, because here, here's how the movie goes. George is such a righteous person that his success means success for all of Bedford Falls, right? He's righteous, and so when he wins, the whole town wins. And when he's gone, when his life disappears, there is a huge hole in the lives of people from that city, specifically the people of that city who are down and out, specifically the poor and the vulnerable and the needy and the oppressed, The New Dave translation, Proverbs 11. When George Bailey prospers, the city rejoices. When Mr. Potter perishes, there are shouts of joy. You see, that whole movie is about a contrast between a righteous person and a wicked person. Someone who shares their resources openly and freely with the needy and poor and vulnerable around them and someone who hoards everything for themselves. Now, here's where it gets huge. What kind of church would we have to be so that everyone in this city who knows about us would say, you know, I don't believe all that they believe over there at Cedar Mill Bible Church, but I shudder to imagine what this city would be like without them. They make so many things right in this community that I do not know how we could ever replace them. I mean, What would refugees and the hungry and single moms and foster kids and homeless families and people in prison do without Cedar Mill Bible Church? If Cedar Mill Bible Church went away, this place would just become Pottersville. You see, friends, when that happens, when we live in this way, when we live as people who are righteous, all of a sudden our message, God's message in and through us gains credibility. When our message that Jesus can utterly redeem and transform your life is backed up with utterly redeemed and transformed lives, people are far more likely to listen, aren't they? This is what happened in the early church. Read the beginning of the book of Acts. 
the, the, the first followers of Jesus are out preaching the good news, sharing the gospel, talking about the resurrection of Christ and the hope of life with God. They're preaching it boldly. They're proclaiming it like fervently and people are hearing it and receiving it. And you know why? You know what the backdrop was to their message? Over and over again. And there were no needy people among them. Why? Because people were selling their land to share their possessions with one another. You see, their lives matched their message, and there's something so powerful about that. There's something so unique about that in our fallen, broken world. Authenticity speaks. So if the impact could be that significant, could be that huge, if we were to live lives of justice, if we were to have hearts of justice, then the question becomes, how can we begin to change How can we become more and more people of justice in this world? First of all, let me point out the wrong approach. The wrong approach to getting this done is, uh, have you ever noticed that people who care a lot about justice in our world can sometimes be incredibly self-righteous? The people most committed to justice, to doing justice, whether they're believers or non-believers, because justice kind of is a vogue thing right now and no matter who you are. These are the people who can be most self-righteous, right? They have this attitude that seems to say, you know, I'm doing this or I'm doing that or I'm giving my life away for that or I'm helping these people and you should be more like me. Aren't I such a good person? You ever encounter this in people? Do you ever see this in yourself? (laughs) You know, if you cared about the poor like I did, then right? Friends, I'm sure you've experienced this and in the church... This attitude is a sure indication that we are taking the wrong approach. That we have moved away from relationship with God and right back into religion. If we go back to Isaiah 58, you know, God says, you know, day after day you seek me, you fast, you seem eager to know my ways, you've got all this sort of religious activity happening in your life and you're pretty passionate about it, you're pretty committed to it. And then he says, you know, and then you say, but God, is this not the kind of fasting? that you want, and God says, no. The kind of fasting I've chosen is loose the chains of the injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, break every yoke, feed the hungry. You know, he's, he's, that's what I'm looking for. And if we read that passage and we come away from that passage and we say, oh, I get it, okay, I got it. God, in order for you to love me, in order for me to be acceptable to you, I not only have to do these religious things, I also need to do some nice things for poor people now too. Now I just need to add justice to my list of religious responsibilities. Just just, just one more thing for me to do. You see, that is not at all what God is saying. That is not what this passage is about in the least. In fact, what God is saying in this passage to these people is your entire approach to me is wrong and backwards. Instead of having a list of things that you must do to earn my favor, God says, let my loving favor determine the list of things that you will do. Instead of, here is what you must do to be my people, let the fact that you are my people change your hearts and your priorities and your attitudes towards the vulnerable. You know, if we read Isaiah 58 and think that God is saying, you know, hey, for me to love you and accept you, I need you to do religious stuff, but I need you to do the right religious stuff. I just need you to get the list right. Then we have missed the entire point of what he's saying. Because here's what God is saying. 
Here's the message that is consistent all the way through the scriptures. You actually can't do enough to win God's favor. You can do justice in your own strength from here until the cows come home and you will have not done enough to earn the favor of God in your life. But God, you know, if we fast enough and worship enough and read our Bibles and pray enough, you know, then you should reward us. You see, here's what God's saying to these people in Isaiah 58. He's saying, stop treating me like a vending machine. Like, like if you put in enough coins or the right coins, then you'll get out of me what you want. See, instead, here's what God is saying. He's saying, instead of you keep, instead of shoving coins at me, instead, let me put something in you. Let me come into you and allow me to move into your mind and heart and life and overwhelm you with my amazing grace and transforming love. Then, then you will not just be people who add justice to a religious checklist, but you will become people whose hearts and minds love the things of God and long to do justice. You see, for God, it's always an inside-out thing. It's a, he wants to change you so that what you do changes. If you just start by trying to change what you do, that's just religion. That's just trying to earn the favor of God. God says, no, I want more than that. I want you to be transformed from the inside out. In the New Testament, uh, this, this order is offered to us so many times. It says this in 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. You see, his love changes us, and now from that changed place, we go out and offer love to the world. The question is, have you been changed by the amazing grace and radical love of God? The other day, I was pulling out of a restaurant. There's a, there's a little corner, and at rush hour, it's tough because you're trying to go left, and there's traffic that's backed up both ways. So the chances of getting a gap in this side and then a gap in that side is really slim. And yet I was kind of running late and I had to get home and I'm thinking like, I gotta find a gap, I gotta get in there and I, and I just kept missing it and there kept being a car. You know how that happens and you're just like, I can't turn left. People are stacking up behind me with their right signals on, like honking, you know? And all of a sudden this one woman comes driving down and all of a sudden she just, she just er, stops and just waves me out. And I was like, oh, thank you. You know, the obligatory thank you wave. And I'm, thank you, thank you, thank you. And you know what? You know what happened in my heart? Just that one small gesture of kindness. You know what happened in my heart? The rest of the day, everywhere I drove, I was just stopping and letting people in. No, go. You should go. No, you first. Three or four of you even, you know. See, it was the kindness of this woman that transformed me, and then I wanted it a lot. I didn't have to work really hard. I just wanted to be the kind of person who would let people in because someone had let me in. Friends, what if the God of the universe had let you in for all eternity? How transformed would you be? What if the God of the universe, who's at the very tippy, 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 tippy top, came all the way down to the very, very bottom, became a human being, hung on a cross, and died to forgive your sin? What if that was true? What if now, not because of anything you have ever done, but because of everything that he's done, you are now forgiven and justified and been given the gift of life, everlasting life that begins now and goes on forever and ever and ever into eternity. What if that were true? Would that not change you? Would that not transform you? Would you now not begin to see the people at the bottom of the barrel who are needy and hurting and vulnerable and oppressed? And after God had waved you in, wouldn't you start waving them in at every opportunity you possibly could? 
You see, if the gospel is true, it will change you. Have you experienced Jesus in that way? Have you experienced God just waving you in for all eternity? I hope that you have. Because when we have, we will become people of justice in this world. A justice that's not just an obligatory checklist, but something that starts to flow from the inside of you and me. And this world will never be the same because it's never seen anything like that. But we need reminders of that. We need reminders of that moment when God said, I'm waving you in. I know you don't deserve it. I know you... you, you don't deserve it at all, but I'm waving you. And that reminder comes at this table where we see the price that God paid so that we could get in. Get in on his life and his abundance and his righteousness and his justice and his eternity. At this table, we remember that God sent his son and that his body was broken, that his blood was shed so that you and I could get in on this thing. And if this meal doesn't change you, then you don't understand it because you've never experienced kindness and grace and mercy and favor and joy and blessing like this ever in your life. There's nothing like it in this world. So this morning as you come to the table, I just invite you to consider again what God has done for you and to ask, has that changed me? Has that made me the kind of a person who is righteous in this world, in this city, in the lives of the people around me? Has the gospel really changed me? Is it changing me from the inside out into a person of justice? Take a minute with the Lord. The worship team's gonna come and play and then when you're ready, come to the table, take the elements back and you can receive them on your own. I'll pray and then the tables will be open. Father, thanks for waving us in. We didn't deserve it and we don't deserve it and we... We can't even grasp the immensity of your love for us, your grace, your mercy. And yet even the little bit we can comprehend, Lord, changes us. Help us to be people who don't tuck that away, but who live with that reality in the center of us, at the forefront of our lives. Help us to see this world and to see the vulnerable and needy and oppressed people of this world through the lens of of your good news. Give us those eyes to see, Lord. Help us to be people of justice. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to send you with this today. Uh, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. That's a really like, big concept, that the city would rejoice. But it starts like one person at a time, doesn't it? And I think, when I think about prosperity and success and people who have been given a lot of resources and abilities and power and influence... I think about our church, a lot of prosperity in this room. And so this week, I guess my challenge for you is just to think of one person, one person this week who will rejoice because you're successful and prosperous. One vulnerable, needy, poor, oppressed person who just needs your success to be cause for them to rejoice because your success overflows out of you and lands on them. Who's that one person that God might lead you to this week? Do you already know who they are? Do you need to pray that God would show you this week? And then here's one other thought. If in the attempt to live that way, things get complicated, inconvenient, 
messy, uncomfortable, you're probably on the right track. Amen? Yes. All right, friends. God bless you. Go be the church, and we'll see you soon.